welcome each to our study tonight and time of prayer. And uh, let's begin by asking for the Lord's help as we look into his word together. Father, we thank you for this time when we can gather and look into your word, this wonderful book, this epistle. And we pray that you would help us as we read it and think about it, guide our thoughts and our hearts today. We pray that it will be a blessing to all. And when we ask that you would be with us as we continue on in study and in prayer and bless our time together, we, we look to you for your help and your guidance. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're beginning a study in the book of Colossians tonight. And uh, we'll see if this will work for us. Uh, first screen is up on the, on the screen. We're going to look at verses 1 to 18 tonight. I've put 1 to 20, because we'll actually cheat a little bit. Uh, there's lots to cover in this passage, uh, in these 20 verses. But I propose to look at this in four sections. 1 to 8 is God's... Uh, presentation to us of the reputation of the Colossians, the Colossian believers, and then Paul's prayer request for the Colossians, reasons to be thankful, and then Christ's preeminence. I'm going to dive right in and read the first eight verses. So let's do that together. I'll, I'll read to you if you can follow along. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and who declared to us your love in the spirit. Uh, many commentators or, or students of the word of God uh, believe that Paul didn't actually visit the city of Colossae. Um, I'm not sure whether that's the case or not, but it, it sounds like perhaps he did not. He talks about the word of God having been given to the Christians there through, through this uh, man named Epaphras mentioned in verse 7 of our, our text tonight. We also know that he writes at the beginning of chapter 2 that um, he has a great concern for those in Laodicea and Colossae uh, and he says, for as many who have not seen my face in the flesh. So that's another clue that perhaps Paul had not visited this, this city. It isn't on the list of the cities that Paul visits in the book of Acts as we follow his journey along. But I, for one, don't believe that's an exhaustive list that's given to us in Acts. There's a lot of places where he spoke the word in the regions, in the areas. But perhaps Paul never visited this place. In any case, he writes to the Colossians he has heard of their faith, he has heard of the word of God and how it had an effect upon them. And he speaks first about uh, what he has heard about the Christians there and their, their practice and their faith about this local church. 
and I've entitled this first section The Good Reputation. I want to just draw out four points from here if I can, and I might need James to help me with this because this clicker just doesn't seem to want to proceed. So there are, I'm going to suggest many um, things that he has heard about their faith, but I want to zero in on four of them. And they come out in the text that, uh, that we'll see. There we go. Thank you. I've highlighted some words in here that I want to think about. He refers to those who are faithful. In fact, of these four that I want to center in on, he mentions them each, I'm going to say twice in, in the opening verses of the epistle. He talks about their faithfulness and their faith. He talks about their love in verse 4, and then he mentions it again in verse 8. He talks about their hope in verse 5, and then refers to it again through a pronoun of which faith he's talking about, or hope, I should say. So there is faith, there is love, there is hope, and then there is fruitfulness, which is mentioned in verse 6, and then it comes up again in verse 10 a little bit later. These four pillars of their faith were prominent in the church at Colossae, and Paul heard about them, and he rejoiced in these qualities of their faith. This was the reputation that this church had. This is the report that went to Paul about these believers. And so I want to think about these four things. I wonder if uh, Epaphras had been here at Readview Bible Chapel and spent some time with us, and, uh, and then went along to visit Paul, what report he might have for Paul about the Christians gathered together at Readview Bible Chapel. What might our reputation be? Or perhaps on a more personal level, we might think, what would our personal reputation be with regard to how we are living our life for the Lord? These were the things that were spoken of with regard to the Colossians. And I just want to think about them a little bit. Faith, to start with. They were known for their faith. The good report of their faith was given to Paul by Epaphras. Faith has a lot to do with faithfulness. In fact, in our, in our text, it first comes up that they are faithful brethren. They are believing brethren, faithful to the Lord. The word is used again of Epaphras himself in verse 7, where it says that Epaphras is a faithful minister of Christ. What does this mean, to be faithful? Well, it has to do with the word fidelity, with the word integrity. It's remaining true, particularly in the face of temptation and adversity. And so the Colossians were true to the Lord through times of adversity, and early Christians living in the days in which these epistles were written, faced a lot of adversity. They faced a lot of hardship and difficulty. And remaining true to the Lord came to them at a cost. There was a price to pay for their faithfulness to the Lord, but they were willing to pay it, and they remained faithful. It, it has to do with remaining accurate and representing the source. The things that they had heard, they remained true to those things. That was faithfulness. And that's the faith that they showed. It also has to do with commitment. And commitment is shown through a number of ways. It's shown through 
support of one another. It's thrown, thrown, shown through the support of the work. It's thrown, shown through attendance. We might see faithfulness in the way of being faithful and attending to the meetings of the church and the care of each other, of one another. This was something that the Colossians were known for. Then we have love. Love, as it's depicted in Scripture, is not so much a case of an emotional affection. That's how we tend to think of love today in our society. But scriptural love has much more to do with sacrificial giving. It has to do with giving and expending of our time and of our resources and of our energy. Love in scripture is a practical service to one another. That's what love is. And the Colossians were known for their love. And uh, Paul heard of it and commends them in it. He recognizes it. So we are to be people of faith and people of love. And then there's hope. Let me ask this question. How do you see hope in the lives of a local church or in individuals? How does it show up? What does it look like? What does it mean that he rejoiced in their hope? What was the evidence of this hope that they had in their lives? Hope is a force that, that drives us. New Testament hope is what we're talking about here, of course. It's not some, uh, not some wistful longing uh, that we might have or, or dreams of things to come, but rather the assurance of things that are set out for us in the future. And the Colossians lived their lives in a way that their hope, their, their future, and all that it entailed drove them and motivated them. It was the motive behind their actions. And uh, it's seen in, in people's lives by examining what, what causes people to do things that they do, what drives them to live their life the way that they do, and to stand up for the things that they do. It's the hope that we have in the Lord that drives us in this way. It's seen, too, in our words. It's seen in the things that we talk about, in, in the things that occupy our minds, and comes out in our conversations. And so we could ask what occupies our minds. It's seen in the encouragement and the comfort that we find in the Scripture. It's our hope in the Lord that uh, is seen in these ways. True hope will shape our words and our actions. True hope, true hope impacts the way that we live and affects our choices. It establishes our priorities. Hope is visible in our lives if we really truly are holding to it. And then we have this last one, fruitfulness. Fruitfulness mentioned in, in verse uh, 6. Their fruitfulness was evident. Their fruitfulness that is through the gospel. And the gospel was the one that was generating this fruit in their lives, the message of the gospel. What is this fruit? Well, we know that there is, of course, fruit, evidence of fruit in, in the fruit of the Spirit. We read about that in Galatians chapter 5 and 22. And our lives will show fruit if we depict those kinds of qualities and character 
as we live our lives, and perhaps that was one of the evidences of fruit in the lives of the Colossians that Paul uh, recognizes here. But we see it too in new life, in growth. Fruit is that uh, seed that is planted in the ground and germinates and grows, that's fruit. Fruit growing in people's lives, it's, growth, it's reproduction, it's new birth. It comes through evangelism, it comes through witnessing and sharing our faith. And I am sure that in the Colossian church there were new believers coming to know the Lord and there was fruitfulness in that regard. But perhaps fruit is, is most in view here that's referred to in verse 10 where we read that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work. Fruitful in every good work. Fruitfulness implies that we are busy, busy in efforts that have an eternal value, things that will matter over the course of time and on into eternity. That is being fruitful. And so these are, these are just four of the pillars of faith Pillars of the, the walk of these uh, Colossian believers that were evident. This was their reputation. This was how they were known. To Epaphras and became known to Paul as Epaphras shared the word of God or the message of the, the church in Coloss, Colossae with the Apostle Paul. Now I want to think briefly about four prayer requests that Paul presents here for the Colossians. These come in uh, verses 9, 10, and 11. We'll read those verses. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, <clears throat> fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering, with joy, giving thanks to the Father. Four prayer requests. <clears throat> we could break this down in a number of ways. I'm sure we can come up with more than four if we wanted to on the list, but I've kind of categorized them into four groups here. His first prayer request for them is that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will. What is knowing God's will? What comes to your mind when you think about that? Paul's prayer for them is that they would know the will of God, filled that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will. When I was young, a young Christian, I thought that the knowledge of his will meant that I would know what university to attend or you know who I should date or what courses I should take at school where I should live. That's what I thought the knowledge of God's will was about. I've come to understand that that's really not hitting the mark when it comes to knowing God's will. That's not what it's primarily about. It's not that God is not concerned about those things. He certainly is. God is concerned about every aspect of our life. But the knowledge of God's will comes through wisdom and spiritual understanding, it says here. You may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. The knowledge of God's will comes by knowing God's word, by understanding his ways, by understanding the principles of the word of God, by understanding how God would think in a particular situation. And I can go back again to my youth 
and think about that bracelet that I'm sure many of you here looking at the audience today could relate to. You know, people wore, what would Jesus do? It's not a bad thing to think about because that's really what knowing God's will is about. How does God see situations? What does the word of God give us in the way of guidance? Not in regard to whether I should turn left or right at this intersection, but what is the direction this is going to take me? Uh, What are the principles of God's word that apply in this situation? Knowing God's will is related to understanding through spiritual wisdom and the knowledge of God, how he would have us to live, and the words that he would have us to say, and how he would have us respond when we're confronted with situations. When we're confronted with a a challenge in our life and a difficulty in our life, there's a thousand things that might go through our minds. But as we come to know God's will, what will come to our mind is, what would scripture have me do? What would the Lord have me do in this situation? As we come to understand God's word and God's principles, we will come to understand the will of God in our life. It is through the renewing of our mind, as we read in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. This is knowing God's will. It's not through special revelation. It's not through miraculous intervention. Not through some personal appearance of the Lord. Not dismissing that God might use those means at some point in time. He might do that for some people at some times. But primarily knowing God's will is related to knowing God's word and knowing God's way. And that's his prayer request for the Colossians that they would know his will through spiritual wisdom and understanding. Secondly, that they would walk worthy of the Lord. There's a rich expression. And uh, one that's used not only here in the word of God, but elsewhere as well. What does it mean to walk worthy of the Lord? What is a worthy walk? Just want you to notice that it talks here about the worthy walk in verse 10. You may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. There's three hints in there as to what walking worthy of the Lord might be. Walking worthy of the Lord is walking in a way that's pleasing him. You know, we seek to please the Lord, not to gain standing with him, not to earn salvation, but we walk in a way that's pleasing to the Lord because that's our call. That's what God has called us to do. And if our heart and desire is to, is to serve the Lord, then we should be looking to please him in the things that we do. I've said this before, and I'll say it again many times, I'm sure. Think about the commitment that you made when you said that you were going to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord. He is your Lord. What does that mean? That he is your Lord. If he is your Lord, if you have accepted him as your Lord, then you have made a commitment to serve him as your Lord. What he instructs to do, you will do because he is your Lord. You will seek to please him and to serve him because he is your Lord. 
Paul's prayer for the Colossians is that they would serve him, that they would, they would walk worthy of the Lord. And one of the ways they do that is pleasing him in the things that they do. Secondly, being fruitful in every good work. Being active in, 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 in the life of a believer. Seeking to serve and help those who need help and assistance in the family of God. And serving the Lord in the things that we do. Active in service for the Lord. And that's, that's walking worthy of the Lord. And then increasing in the knowledge of God. It says, growing in our understanding of God's word and of God himself. This little expression at the end of verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God, is interesting to me because it's the third thing we are to come to know that's been mentioned already in this passage. Notice that in verse 6, they came to know his grace. Since the day you heard it and knew the grace of God in truth, that has to do with our salvation, coming to know his grace. The second thing they came to know was his will in verse 9, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. But the greatest endeavor, the greatest achievement, is not to come to know his grace or to know his will, but to know God himself. Increasing in the knowledge of God, it says in verse 10. And in these ways, we can find ourselves walking worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, says in verse 11, third prayer request for, for them from Paul, is that they might be strengthened with all might. I'm always interested to see what God uh, calls us to be strengthened for. And the epistles give us some interesting answers to that question. We might think, well, we need to be increased in strength for the mighty battles that we're going to fight. We need to be increased in strength so that we can be strong in service for God, that we can get out there and move mountains. We need to be increased in strength so that we can do great works of faith and battle Satan's forces. I, I suppose those things are true to a degree, but often in Scripture what I see strength is required for are things like those that are mentioned here. Strengthened according to, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for long suffering with joy. Sometimes those are the things for which we need strength the most. We need strength to go on in faith, living for God, exercising patience and endurance. It's been suggested that endurance speaks primarily of those things, those obstacles and, and problems that we face in life, in the circumstances of our life, that we have to carry on through with strong testimony and faith. Endurance and patience reflects more the attitude towards others. Sometimes we need to be patient when people are causing problems or not being the way they ought to be or we have some difficulty or problem. We need to exercise long-suffering and patience with people. And sometimes we need the strength of God to carry on in those ways. We see other examples of this. For example, in Ephesians 3, we studied Ephesians recently where we're told that we are strengthened, what? For knowing his love. 
that we might be strengthened so that we might know the extent of God's love for us. Ephesians 3, verses 16 to 19. Or conforming to his death. Philippians 3 and 10. For testimony. Here in Colossians, verse 29, we read about being strengthened again so that we might be strong in our testimony for the Lord. We need his strength for these purposes. And... uh, the Lord and Paul prays for the Colossians in that regard. They might be strengthened. And then lastly, that they would be thankful. This little word at the end of verse 11, uh, all patience and long-suffering with joy. It's not clear in the original text whether that word applies to the giving of thanks or to the long-suffering and the patience. And there's different uh, commentaries that speak in different ways about that. I don't think it really matters one way or the other. The fact is that we are to be joyful, whether it's joyful in our long-suffering and endurance or joyful in the giving of thanks, we are to be joyful. And that's one of the characteristics that, that ought to be shown in our lives. Uh, last, so fourthly, they are to be thankful. His fourth prayer request, that, would, that we would be thankful. God desires that we be people of gratitude. And then Paul lists five reasons why we ought to be thankful. And I'm just going to show this slide. Our time is going so quickly, I'm not going to speak about this. But there are five reasons that we ought to be thankful. Five reasons that the Colossians ought to be thankful. And we can be thankful for each of these. These are very rich, deep expressions. And we could say a lot about them. We could spend a lot of time thinking about these things. I'm just going to pass by, encourage you to look at them from verse 12 down to verse 15, and you only might think about these wonderful realities, things that we should be thankful for to the Lord, things that he has done in our lives, great blessings to us. And then we have 10 glories of Christ in this wonderful passage from verse 15 to 20. I'll just leave that up there for a minute for you to look at again. I'm not going to talk about these things. There's 10 points. You're supposed to have three points in a good message, not that many points. So we're not going to talk about these these, uh, 10 glories of Christ and preeminence. But this passage from God's Word is one of the great passages about the theology of Jesus Christ in the Word of God. And uh, those are ten glories that we could spend a lot of time thinking about. But instead, I'm going to skip by that and present the passage here to you on the screen. These are the words written out. This is a translation, actually, of this passage that was, I appreciated, by a writer by the name of N.T. Wright, Tom Wright. Uh, He wrote a commentary on this passage, and I think it's in the library, actually, here. Um, And uh, I appreciated this. He, He points out, as a number of writers do, that these verses, 15 to 20, are written in a kind of a poetic structure, actually. And there are many who believe that that this was perhaps a hymn that Paul was drawing on as he wrote to the Colossian believers. I don't know if that's the case or not. Regardless, it was inspired by the word, by the Spirit of God and put into the scriptures. So it is presented to us. 
but it's in a, in a kind of a poetic structure. In fact, it's, it's similar in structure to a lot of Hebrew poetry. Of course, it was written in Greek, not in Hebrew, but it's similar to Hebrew poetry. You'll see a lot of the Psalms, for example, broken down in structures like this. You'll see that there are four sections to this particular poem, if that's what it is. And one correlates with four, and two correlates with three. And put a line down the middle of this, because the, the whole poem or the whole passage kind of pivots at the end of, of this, uh, this section between those two lines. And so, um, the first half of this poem, if we're going to think of it that way, deals with Christ in creation. The second half really deals with Christ in the new creation. Christ in his work of redemption, the cross work of Christ. In the first section, we, we read about Christ and uh, creation and his active involvement as the creator of the world. In the second half, we read about Christ and his work and salvation and redemption and delivering people from sin. A passage is difficult to translate from Greek and yet retain the poetic structure, but the attempts of this author were to try to translate this as literally as possible and in a format that, that conveyed the structure of the Greek so that we can see the poetic structure of it, and I've appreciated that. The Redeemer of the Colossians, this poem tells us, is none other than the creator of the universe. Christ is creator, Christ is redeemer. And so these points pivot. There is symmetry in this passage. And so section one and section four both begin in the same way. He is, uh, speak about what he is. Um, and uh, my glasses aren't good enough to see that. <laughs> But it says, who is? And then the little sections two and three, which correspond, each begin with those words, and he, and he. So the first part is a statement about Christ, and then kind of an exposition on that, and a summary. And the third one is a little summary, and then another statement about Christ, with a section that follows. And you can see more symmetry in this as we look at a little bit of, of detail. As he is referred to as the firstborn, firstborn of all creation in the first section, the firstborn from the dead. And then the section that's in a box is kind of an explanation of those statements that are given with regard to Christ in creation and Christ in the new creation. Each of the little explaining, explaining sections in the original have these key references. In him, through him, and to him. In him, through him, and to him. And so there is this structure that comes out in the descriptions about Christ. 
He is the redeemer of the Colossians, and he is the creator of all. The one who they follow is the creator. This, this little poetry, this little section would appeal to both the Greeks and to the Jews in the church of Colossae. To the, to the Greeks who came from a background of polytheism, this would uh, remind them that Christ the one that they serve, the one they have chosen to follow is the God, that there is no other. He is the one God and creator of all. And they would rejoice in that. That is Christ's eternal nature. And to the Jews who would reflect on this poem, there is, there is language in this poem, and in fact, even in the preceding section, that speaks about deliverance, salvation, or redemption, I should say, and deliverance and light and darkness <clears throat> that would draw their minds to the exodus and to the deliverance from Egypt that God brought about. And the one that they have come to serve is none other than the creator of the universe. It is Christ. And this uh, wonderful little poem about he who is the image of God reminds us, of course, that Adam was also created in the image of God, but through sin fell. But Christ who comes has always represented, always contained being the image of God. He has retained that. And when he came as a man, as a perfect man, he now presents God to us. He is the image of God. He is God in the flesh. There's much more we could say about this, but our time is gone. There are a lot of people who believe that this little section also relates back to a wonderful passage in Proverbs 8 about wisdom, and there are some tie-ins here to that that we don't have time to dive into, but some wonderful uh, study and reflection I would recommend to you, and uh, we can rejoice that Adam and Christ represent the image of God, but Christ is truly for us depicting God to us. This little quote that I read from that commentary that I referred to, and he write, humanity was the climax of the first creation, created on the sixth day. Tr the true humanity of Jesus is the climax of the history of creation. And the start, the starting point of the new creation, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist, and he is head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him all fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven having made peace through the blood of his cross.
Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage and for its richness to us. We pray that you would help us as we reflect upon it to come to a better understanding of the nature of our God and the nature of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you'd continue to with us tonight as we consider items for prayer and as we spend some time together and uh, ask for your help in this. And thank you in our Savior's name. Amen.